and welcome back to another episode of Bosnian American Professionals Podcast. My name is Nedim Ramić. I'm a personal injury attorney here in the St. Louis area and uh, my co-host Dr. Avdić. I'm chiropractor here in St. Louis as well. And today's guest, him and I go kind of way back. Like, you know, I, I mean, I just saw him. I told him it's been a hundred years, but I don't think it's been that long and I had not seen him. But it's a very good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Denis Kuje. And you also check so many boxes besides just being a doctor, you know. And we'll talk about all of those. I don't want to give them away, but we're talking here U.S. Marines. We're talking about being a doctor. We're talking about being Bosnian-American. And we're talking about being, you know, uh, a devout Muslim with, you know, on top of all of that. So that that's just amazing. Dennis, have I missed anything in introducing you, my friend? No, I probably missed all the bad stuff. But uh, uh, we'll stick for the good stuff for right now. We'll talk about the bad stuff as well. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us today. I know you are a busy man working uh, long hours as a doctor. So again, thank you for being with us. So let's just start. Tell us a little bit about you know yourself, where you're from, when you come to the United States, and all that stuff. All right. So clearly, I'm from Bosnia, uh, from uh, Prijedor. Uh, I came to the States June 24th, 1993. We were, the, we were actually, I think, first or second uh, families to come after the concentration camp uh, prisoners. So when we arrived, there was really the three, three families of Bosnians in a four apartment building, and we had a Mexican neighbor. Um, and then, I mean, just kind of did the regular thing that everybody else did, you know, International Institute and... Uh, High school for a year and um, where did you go to high school? I went to uh, Roosevelt for one year and um, I am a, actually a high school dropout. So I got my GED several years after I, I, I dropped out of high school and uh, then went on to a community college for a semester. Then joined the Marine Corps and after I was done with the Marine Corps, um, started in community college again. Then went to uh, St. Louis University, transferred to uh, I'm, I'm sorry, went to UMSL. Then transferred to St. Louis University. I got my bachelor's in computer science from there and uh, worked as a software uh, engineer for a year at, uh, oh, what was it called? National Information Solutions Cooperative in uh, Lake St. Louis and then uh, went to medical school after that. And here we are. Man, here we are. Now I am a ER doctor and a hospitalist for um, working several hospitals just across the river in Illinois. Okay. Where did you go to medical school? St. Louis University. St. Louis University. Yeah. So, let's back up. All the, how old were you when you first came to the United States? Thirteen. I just thir I just thirteen or fourteen. I don't know. Back in ninety three. Back in ninety three. So I don't know. I think I was. I think I just turned fourteen actually. And yeah. from Prijedor. How Prijedor. much of that stuff do you remember from down there? Well, I remember all of it. I, I remember the war vividly. Uh, I remember everything that happened. I remember. Uh, I, I remember development of racism, unlike kind of what we see now, actually. It's, it's very, very similar to what happened. Like, what people don't realize is those things don't just happen overnight. It, you, if, you, if you pay attention, you see the warning signs. And this is kind of what's happening here now. It is, it's eerily similar, to be honest. The culmination of it all. The culmination of it all, right. Uh, the demonization, the division, the... the, the levels of the rhetoric you see at, at the highest levels of government 
all of it is is very reminiscent and uh you know you just kind of wonder wow is this you know is this where this is going which is kind of scary to be honest but this is america so there's always hope so let me ask you this then so when did you drop out of high school how old were you uh, right after ninth grade so about, i don't know like maybe 15 16 16 i was 16 because i know I, I i could drive my dad would give me his uh Car sometimes, and I would just skip. <laughs> not, the, not the proudest years of your life, right? Uh, no, definitely not. Definitely not. You know, when you get older and you realize how stupid you were, you can't really remember it with pride. <laughs> how long did, um, after you dropped out did you take the GED? Probably two years. Two years. Uh, yeah, and it was just at the insistence of my father. And I think I, I mentioned that on our first intro podcast, I was offered GED when I came here because I graduated from uh, Gymnasia mm -hmm. in Bosnia. I finished that. Um, and then whenever I came, I had an option to either take GED or go back to high school. So I went here to high school for like four or five months and got the high school diploma. So that's, that's why I'm asking. Yeah. Uh, obviously, GED didn't stop you. At that time, people I talked to, they said, don't go the GED route because it's not. They were right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. they, they were absolutely right. It is definitely not the best approach, but, it, you know, for a person like me, it was the only approach. It was either that or nothing. Uh, so it, it does close some doors, and, you know, I had to go take a roundabout way to where I'm at now and put in a lot more work to, to get there. So, I mean, and if you really look at it, the chances of me being where I'm at today were almost slim to none. So thank God, right? Well, you joined the Marines. How old were you at that time? I think I just turned 18. How did you decide to join the Marines? Well, when you got when you don't have a lot going for you, you look for options. So, I mean, I, I worked in factories, I worked in fast food, I worked in just, you know, that end jobs, and uh, I had no, uh, no options, really. And how long was your stay with them? I, I only served for two years. I ended up just uh, only serving for two years. So. And then got out and got back to school? Not right away. I worked at, uh, actually I worked at uh, uh, ABB, a company over on uh, Highway, uh, was it 70? Remember the one that got shot up yeah. a few years ago? I actually worked there. Wow. Yeah. Did, did, did the Marine Corps help you a lot? I mean, a lot of people say like, you know, you go into the military, you know, and then, you know, they, they, they get, they instill that, you know, how am I going to put it? Um, responsibility in you, they instill all these great values in you. Did, did it help in your case? Absolutely. So what uh, what the Marine Corps did for me is one thing I lacked in life was discipline and it did teach me discipline. Uh, the Marines, the military itself is a is a fantastic organization. Uh, the, the problem with the military is the government that you serve. So the Marines are proficient, they are disciplined, they are honorable people but the governments that they serve send them all around the world to uh, unfortunately kill innocent people and that's that is my objection to uh, military service it is it is uh, so sad that such an amazing organization is being misused and these young men you know men like I was who are really honorable and trying and everything you know when you hear support our troops it doesn't, I really don't see it as uh, send these young men away from their families, away from their loved ones for five, six, seven tours in a war zone where they're going to see all kinds of traumatic stuff 
for no reason. That and, and the people who are really hypnotized by this false sense of patriotism that the government, you know, markets allow these their sons and daughters to go for them to you know to be misused like that. So I was fortunate enough there was no conflict when I was in the Marine Corps. But would I go to the military again? I think it's so useful. I mean, it did change my life. I mean, later on, when I became a Muslim, it really had had me this sense of following the rules. That was one of, I think, changing points in my life is following the rules. So when I read a rule, I just kind of could relate to when a command is given, a command is, uh, you know, the duty is performed. And that is how I understood religion after that. So, I mean... It allowed me to have the discipline to study eight hours a day when I did, and you know, end up in a medical school. I'm not particularly smart. I just put in a lot of work, and and anybody can do anything if they just put a lot of work in it. So yes, military is valuable. It helped a lot. It does change people. Interesting. And three things that I want to kind of add to your comments. Uh, number one, I agree with you. I'm, you know, neither one of us in this room is very smart. It's just that we put in the hours, <laughs> I think. So, uh, second thing is, when it comes to the uh, uh, military, you know, you don't see all those politicians making decisions to send people overseas, send their kids into the military. Trump had six deferments. Six deferments, exactly. And the number three things that I kind of discussed with my friends playing the devil's advocate here. I love the United States, It's I think it's the greatest country in the world, I love the US Constitution, I think it's working, but one thing that I always say is, I think we've got it so good here because we're causing all this havoc uh, across the world, and so maybe that's kind of the justification that I see in, you know, sending sending troops overseas. Now, what they do over there, is, as, as you said, it's like sometimes it's just not pretty, but I think they do a valuable service to, to for our country so and then again we need to do you know differentiate between you know marine serving soldiers serving and then the country and their goals and what they want to send them into so correct that that, that kind of makes perfect sense correct I agree so after GED and uh, start where did you go to community college I, I actually went to Merrimack and Forest Park and then uh, how did you transition from software uh, you said software engineering was your uh, major. Yeah. Major. How did you transfer from uh, software engineering to the med school school? But when did you? How did you uh, decide you just want to be a doctor? Then uh, my, my dad got cancer halfway through, and then I just kind of went uh, through it with him, and um, it just piqued my interest in medicine, and um, I just decided that I'm going to take some uh, pre-med classes. So it extended my education by about a year. I already had some prerequisites. So, you know, really to apply to med medical school, you just have to have basic prerequisites, you know, year of biology, year of chemistry, year of organic chemistry, th things like that. So it wasn't really much of an effort to, to try. And so I decided to try, and I just happened to get in on the first try. Good. I, uh, I was lucky enough, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I'm gonna ascribe it to the will of God. Uh, to, to be interviewed by a person who has uh, had essentially the same route as I did. So I think that had something to do with it. Uh, Dr. Wilmore, who's a neurologist at St. Louis University, I'm not sure if he's still there or not, but a great guy and uh, you know, an amazing doctor. And uh, I, I kind of owe him, I, I believe, 
that I owe him for forgetting him. So that is amazing. A neurologist doesn't get higher than that, does it? In medicine, you know what I'm saying. But the, the, when it comes to medical school, like, what was your experience during that time, and how did you how did you cope with all that you know extra work that you needed to do? The best way to describe medical school, I don't know how, how law school is, but uh, the best way to describe medical school is like drinking water. So college, you're drinking the water out of a glass. Medical school, you're drinking it out of a fire hydrant. Uh, you just you still have to drink all the water. It's just a lot more of it. So, you know, there's no making up on this day in medical school, what I realized. It's, I, I had to study eight hours a day every day. And you just put in your work and, you know, good things happen, I guess. It's, it's, there's really no secret to it. It's, it's just hard work, you know. I mean, you can learn anything if you just apply yourself. And That's very true. Yeah. So, and then you go and you, uh, so first two years are classroom-based, and then you do some practice patients. Year three and four, you start your, third year, start, you start your rota rotations, and that is where you're supposed to figure out what you are supposed to do. What do you want to do? And uh, the way medicine is structured, or at least medical training, is really honestly terrible, because uh, you you once you decide a direction, you're kind of committed to it for for the rest of your life, and it's kind of ridiculous. But that's the way it is. So they have you rotate through pediatrics and cardiology and surgery and plastics and whatever, and uh, third and fourth year, and then you're supposed to pick your residency. You pick a residency, and then you go and you do another three years and. Residency is the scary part. You what know, did you do your residency? I did my residency in Peoria. I actually did a family practice residency, but I don't do family practice. I, I, what I do is emergency medicine and hospitalist medicine. So you get a uh, family practice is a broad-based residency, and you can kind of tailor it to what you want to do. And I just ended up doing a lot of critical care stuff and a lot of emergency stuff and inpatient stuff. So it really helped me to, uh, when I got out, I found the jobs that I want, and that's what I do now. So what, what exactly do you do now? I work, uh, now I work mostly in emergency rooms. That's the scary part, right? Because you is see all kinds part. of stuff. Yes. It, it is, uh, it, every day going to work, I am worried. Which, I mean, it, it, I think if you're not worried, if you're go when you're going into an emergency room, you're stupid. Because anything can come through that door. Anything can come through that door and people depend on you. And you've got to make decisions in a split second. Yes. Not all the time, but a lot of times. And, you know, worrying about making the right decision, you you know, doctors always have to worry about being sued by people like us, <laughs> lawyers. But, you know, I, I, and, and that, that's just amazing. Didn't you pick, like, the most stressful venue? It can be also most rewarding, too. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's not most stressful. It is, like you said, it, it's actually, I, I see it as most rewarding because sometimes you actually stop a bad process from happening and uh, you just feel that reward right away. Yeah, it can, be, it can be stressful, but it just depends on a personality, to be honest. To me, uh, outpatient practice, just your regular doctor, is super stressful because I'm just not designed for that. I, I need to just... Be wanna, stimulated, I you guess. You want to see that immediate result. Yes. Yeah. We all have a niche, and that's just mine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to say that this is better or this is better, you know, or this doctor does more than this doctor, I think that's that's kind of a, a falsely presenting the situation. 
both doctors have a equal amount of responsibility that just presents itself in a different way. So it's equal stress, equal responsibility, equal results. It's just different environment. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and then the reason I say this is interesting and fascinating because I just don't see myself ever, you know, I, I walk into a hospital to visit somebody. I'm like, uh, I just don't feel right here. I want to get out of here. And then, you know, imagine having to go in there and work every day. That's just... That's how I, I feel when I go into courtroom. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 you know, that kind of makes sense. But as I said, like, my, my sister-in-law is also a nurse at, you know, I think St. Mary's or Mercy. I don't know which, which, which hospital. But, you know, I, we'd go visit her, my, my wife and I, and she I just don't she feel... She forgive you for this. You know, just taking donuts <laughs> in there, like, you know, you're like, ah, hospital, I don't want to be in here. Let's get out of here. And that's why I say, like, I respect people that, that go in there and do their, do their job all day, every day, because it, uh, I couldn't. You know, I don't know if you want to touch base on it uh, a little bit, but uh, obviously we have a lot of opioid crisis now. Mm -hmm. How much of it do you see in, in your emergency room? So when you work, how much of it do you see people just coming in looking for? Uh, so, uh, yes. So I see, I get a lot of overdoses. I work in some, uh, in some of the places I work are kind of in the rougher areas, uh, Granite City being one of them. Uh, and I see we get a lot of overdoses there. Uh, some days are better than others. Uh, then, and that's not the only place, of course. There's several other uh, places where I work. I mean, you see them even in small towns, like mm -hmm. towns of 3,000 people. Uh, so you see a lot of overdoses coming in, and then you see a lot of what we call pain seekers. Or they don't seek pain, they seek opioids. So I guess that, oh, a better term would be a, a narcotic seeker. Uh, but honestly, sometimes half of the people I see in, a, in any given day, I have to say no to because they are they are just seeking narcotic medications and it's kind of sad. And, and there, you know, once you get in that environment, you, you just see how ridiculous that looks sometimes. I mean, you have people who are texting, rating their pain as 10 out of 10. Uh, and, and it is just uh, stupid. And when you, they, I don't know if they think that we don't understand pain or what, but you know that's what they do. And when you deny them narcotics, they will get super mad and you know go on Yelp and tell you how bad of a doctor you are. So that is the stressful part. It isn't a, a person who's having a heart attack or bleeding to death. Or to me, the stressful part is the people who are going to mud, you know, drag your name through the mud because you did something that is actually good for them and you, you, you are not destroying their health by giving in to their demands. Two things to, to, to say to that. Uh, we've, we've had clients that are, you know, drug users and then their stories, as you just mentioned, for some reason, they're, they're pathological liars and they think they can, like, you know, yeah. make you believe as well, even though you can see straight through them. Yeah. And the second second aspect of my add-on to, to your opioid is, are there ways, do you guys have mechanisms within the hospital when you see something like that to kind of point them in the right direction and say, hey, listen, you need to go into rehab. This is the person you need to talk to to get you better on the right track. I don't think that the environment is right for that. When you really think about uh, addicts, they until they are ready, they cannot be counseled. So they come there with a purpose of obtaining narcotics. Once they don't, the conversation ends there. You are their enemy and they will not accept any, any advice from you. So it's very, very difficult to, 
to do that. As, as much as you would want to counsel them, you just can't. I think you wrote something recently on Facebook. Until they want to help themselves, there's just not much anybody else around them can do, right? Right. Uh, the, 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 the only thing you can do for an addict while he's, he or she is still an addict is you can enable them until they're ready. So, I mean, I have, I've, I've realized that through personal growth. I've had several friends who were addicts, several friends who were, you know, addicted to opioids and stimulants. And so you, you see it a lot. And, and these were good friends of mine. So I've watched, kind of, I've watched this road on a professional level and on a personal level. And that is just uh, the way it is. Uh, you, you just can't until they're ready. And that's the advice I would give to families. You know, you cannot enable them. You can't give them money. You can't give in to their... So when you want something really bad, like you said, they are number one. They are pathological liars. It's not because they're bad people. We have to, we have to keep that in mind. We can't say these are bad people. These people have a need that needs to be filled. And because it, is, it cannot be filled through regular channels, they look for other ways to do it. So... They will lie, they will steal, they will cheat, they will do all of these things, not because they're bad people, but because they have a bad problem. And I, a lot of times, try to explain to families, uh, when I speak to them about their loved one's uh, opioid addiction, about, uh, it's easiest to present it in, the ter in terms of smoking. A lot of them are smokers. Uh, unfortunately, smoking is extensively, extensive in Bosnian community, right? Everybody smokes. And no matter how many people I say, oh my God, you're going to get lung cancer, you're going to get COPD, you're going to get emphysema, you are literally going to drown in, in air, not in water, but in air. This is what I see every day. It does not ring a bell. So I say, why don't you stop? And you're not even going to get pain or diarrhea or, or depression. Well, you may get depression if you quit smoking, but you're not going to get these physical symptoms once you stop. And yet you still crave the substance. You still do it, even though you know you're killing yourself. So how can you not understand their position? They're, you can go to a store and buy this. If they could, they would too. But they can't. So that, that's, that's like a, for a smoker, family who, smoke, who have a smoker in their family, this is how they should view the situation. And, and I think you've answered my follow-up question to that because there are two sides of that, like how, how should you like treat these addicts? One side is saying, well, no help for them. They did this to themselves. They should have never started doing it. And then the other side is viewing it, hey, man, they're just ill. They need help. You know, yeah. how do you approach it? So I'm assuming you're on that, hey, they're ill side. You know, they need help. They need different help than, you know. Yes. So they are sick. But that does not mean I'm going to uh, chase after them to save them from themselves. You can't do that. So, the, the, in my belief, the correct approach is to have all the resources lined up. And again, if, if you are a family member, the res do your research now. And I, I think I actually wrote uh, about that on social media. It is, you have to do your research now so you are ready. And every so often, they will be, something will happen in their life today where they're ready to quit. And you need to be ready to provide them that support when they are ready. If you try to do that and pressure them uh, when they're not ready, all you're going to do is you're going to drive them away. You're going to drive them to hide stuff. So you have to be accepting of this disease. You have to be ready to help. 
but you cannot hunt help. You can't push help. You cannot do that. You're just wasting resources, number one. You're wasting your patience. The, the repeat disappointment, the, the wasted funds, all those things. And unfortunately, as you are waiting for them to stop, some of them will die. Sad but true. You can't save everybody. And so it is, this is the same principle that is generally uh, should be applied to all medicine, all, even pre all preventive medicine. If you have diabetes, if you have type 2 diabetes, for most people, they did it to themselves through their diet, through their uh, lack of exercise, all of that. So I'm not going around snatching burgers out of their hands. So you can't expect me to do that with an opioid addict. It is the same self-inflicted uh, condition that is cured by advice and being available to help them when they're ready. That was a long-winded answer. <laughs> That's the one that we needed. That's the one that we needed. So you feel comfortable talking about your faith, Dennis? That is the thing I feel comfortable talking about the most, actually. That is the purpose of my life. Good, good. So you said you became a Muslim. Yes. And I, I don't want to say recently, but after all these things that had happened, so you, you, you didn't see yourself as a Muslim before that, before that. I was an atheist. I was a rabid atheist. I was the type of atheist that, was, that thought that uh, people who believe in God were stupid. I made it very public. I uh, had a lot of, I'll call them debates, but they were more like angry arguments with people of faith. Uh, I would call them stupid and, and just belittle them, and uh, that's, that was me. And then one day, one day I was just sitting on my couch, and a thought came to my head uh, asking me, why do you believe the things that you believe? So it just made me uh, eval evaluate my stance. And uh, it's, it's kind of difficult to explain now, but, I mean, I could talk about this for several hours. You know, you have several, as you're growing up, several, you, several things affect you. Number one is your uh, indoctrination. So you are, whether you are raised in a particular type of religion or a certain national identity or certain political uh, ideology like communism or capitalism, you're going to have a strong uh, disposition towards it. Okay. The second uh, issue is arrogance. I thought I knew what I was talking about, but what unbeknownst to me, I only was able to debate uh, against people who were claiming to be religious well because they were more ignorant than me. I was ignorant, but they were more ignorant. So they really never knew what was in their religious books. So my assumption about religion was historical. So I, I looked at the crusades and I looked at all the evil that was done in the name of religion, in the name of religion throughout the time. And I was like, this is disgusting. This can't, there, there is no God. You know, you're telling me about this all merciful God would do all of this and you know, get out of here. But as this thought came into my head, why do you believe the things that you believe? One of the first things I realized is I was ignorant. So I started reading. The first thing I read was the Bible. And what I found in the Bible was uh, kind of really shocked me quite a bit. Uh, Jesus is in no way portrayed as a son of God in the Bible. He is in no way portrayed as God in the Bible. I mean, there are verses in the Bible, one of them uh, being, uh, what does he say? So I think it was in the in book of John. He says, and do not hold on to me, for I have not ascended yet. I have not ascended to my God and your God. And you know, it's like... 
are you are you people not listening to this? He says he has a God. And uh, also, uh, there's a story where a rich person comes to him and says, uh, good teacher, how can I enter the kingdom of heaven? And he goes, why do you call me good? There's nobody good except God alone. So it's like, don't call me good. There's somebody that's good, but it isn't me. And after that, I read the Quran, and it really confirmed all of my, uh, all my beliefs. It, it says the same thing. And uh, as, as I was reading through it, I, I realized uh, that this is the only rational way that life, society, personal life, family can develop and, and be pleasant. And I also realized that life, so when, when people talk about religion, ultimately they're talking about heaven and hell. If we get there, when we get there, if we get to heaven, you have to, uh, you have to think about it logically. So if we get there, heaven has to be the same for me as for you, right? I cannot ruin it for you or it's no longer heaven. Heaven has to be perfect, right? So in the Quran, it is described basically as the earth with just nice weather all the time and fruits and everything. So we already essentially live in it, except the people. So if heaven has to be perfect, and the environment is not going to mess it up for you. The only other, only other uh, variable that can mess it up for you, or for me, or for him, is people. So, that is why we're here. You have to prove here that you are that type of a person. That you will humble yourself, that you will not lie, that you will not cheat, that you will not steal, that you will not covet other people's stuff. Humility, true humility. And it's not easy. So, I have been trying to be a Muslim for eight years. And uh, I, identify, I, I identify shortcomings on myself every single day. But people don't see those things because they're not trying to see them. Eight years ago, I thought I was a good person. When I saw old people, I would give them money. I saw a beggar on the street, I would give him money. And, you know, uh, I, was, I was arrogant, but not all the time. And then the effort that it takes to become this... You have to understand, you know, it took you several years of sincerely trying to become a lawyer, and you're just a lawyer. It took me several years to sincerely, of sincerely trying, eight hours a day, every day, to become a doctor, and I'm just a doctor. Our jobs are nice, but they are not heaven. So when you consider the amount of effort it takes to become a professional, for, for us to think that it takes less amount to enter heaven is idiotic, right? It's stupid. You, the, the, the ultimate reward requires ultimate effort. And it becomes with studying. And that's where what I realized. That is why I was able to argue against all these people of religion when I was an atheist. Because they never read the books. They never read them. Even now, I realize that 99.9% .9 of people who claim to, ha to believe in a religion, to belong, who claim to belong to a religion, have never studied these books as they should be studied. Wow. That is very deep, man, and, and, and it makes perfect sense. And, and, and that's uh, across the board on religion, or do you see it more on one side than the other? Across the board. Across mm -hmm. the board. So people have uh, replaced culture with uh, religion with culture. So we are... Muslims, right? So, uh, or, or look at it this way. Western world is mostly Christian. Eastern world is mostly Muslim, right? They only differ 
in their culture. They don't differ in what the book says. When you really think about it, the book says the Ten Commandments and what's written in the Quran is exactly the same thing. They should never be at war because neither one of them would ever start a war unless for self-defense. God authorizes uh, self-defense, but never authorizes aggressive war, right? So if you look at it on a purely religious level, you can't have conflict ever. But culturally, that, that's what it is. So I mean, when you really think about it, let's say my name is Dennis, right? You know how many times I've been asked by, by uh, uh, Muslims from, you know, from like Arab world or, or far, farther east, why don't I have a Muslim name? <laughs> so you have to really consider what does the word Muslim mean? That, that's a lot of people, that's another thing I learned is that there is a lot of loss uh, in partial translation. Right? So there's a verse in the Quran that says the only religion acceptable to God is Islam, right? So most people in this world are going to understand this as you have to belong to our group. You know, we have our little buildings which we call mosques, we have our names which are simply Arabic names. And if you don't belong to our group, no matter what you do, it doesn't depend on your deeds. You just have to say that you belong to us, right? Otherwise, God will not accept you, except that's not what it says. The word Islam means submission to God. So what God is really saying, the only religion acceptable to God is obedience. And that's the Bible says that too. Uh, so both, I'll just stick to Christianity and Islam because I have studied those the most. But both of these religions have created these uh, false sense of forgiveness. Right? In the Bible, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is called the Messiah in the Quran. Yeah. You know, so uh, he's in the Bible. He is quoted as saying uh, that he will say on Judgment Day. So he says, "Many will come to me that day and say, Lord, Lord, uh, did we? Hold on, I not see. Uh, I'm. I ran a blank. Many will come to me that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy uh, in your name and drive out many demons in your name? So from the beginning." <laughs> Not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, will we not prophesy in your name and drive out many demons in your name? And I will tell them plainly, away from me, evildoers, I never knew you. Official doctrine of most Christian subsects is forgiveness with faith alone. You believe in Jesus and you are for, for forgiven. He himself says, that people will come to him that day and say, we are Christians. We are Christians. We believe in you. And he will tell them, away from me. Who? Evildoers. You did evil. It's about what they do. Same thing in the Quran. Only religion acceptable to God is obedience. You can't go around doing what, whatever. They expect to get to heaven. Yeah. But see, because they did not translate that one single word, you have all these people around walking around with these chains that said Allah on the chain. And, and they're they in a bar. They yeah. they lie. They steal. They cheat. They do all these things. No, I I tend to agree with this. And my stance has always been. And I'm not, you know, as 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 a piece as, as religious of a person as you are. Maybe someday I'll get there. But my 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 stance has always been as well that all these religions out there are great if you follow it the way they're supposed to be followed. Correct. Because every single one of them says turn the other cheek, which, as you said, if we follow that, there's no war. Right. And so at the end of the day, 
you know, if you follow a, a religion, I think if everybody followed the way it's supposed to be, I think we'd have heaven on earth, right? But you're just not there yet. And I don't well, think we'll ever be there. I don't think we'll ever be yeah, there. I, I guess the way I, I understand it is, I guess uh, there's no bad religion, just bad people. So that's, that is everything I said in summed up. Yep. There you go. Well, Dennis, I know you're a busy man and we do want to be respectful of your time. This was a, a, a great interview. And is there anything else that you would like to add for our listeners? Um, if they've got any questions for you, be it, you know, Marines, be it medical school, be it religion, are you willing to kind of answer some questions Absolutely. if somebody wants to reach out to you? Absolutely. What's the best way to reach out to you? Oh, uh, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm on Facebook, so uh, I, I'm always willing to help out or the best I can. So just message me on Facebook would probably be the best way. Splendid. Addis, anything else? No, that will do it. Thanks a lot for coming out. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, everybody. You all have a wonderful rest of the day wherever you're listening to this podcast. A wonderful and safe rest of the week. And have a good one. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone.